Tonight we're covering the entire book of Titus before we go into Job. And this morning I'd like to draw your attention to two verses. Titus chapter 2 verses 8 or verses 9 and 10. It says, exhort servants, which means slaves, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, I want to take a poll this morning, and I want everyone to be involved and answer honestly. How many of you work? How many of you have jobs? Raise your hand. Okay, hands down. How many of you are employers? That is, you control the business. Raise your hand. Okay, we have a few. How many are employees? You work for somebody else. Uh, That's what I thought. How many of you in the workforce uh, are women? Raise your hand. Okay, then we can assume the rest are men. How many of you are real satisfied with your job? You want to hang right where you're at and stay there for many years to come. (laughs) Many hands went down when I added that last part. People divide their day up into three categories. Eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of their own time or leisure. Unless, of course, you're a working mother or just a mother, uh, especially of young children. You've got two phases, frenzy and sleep. But for the most part, if you have a job, you divide your day up into those three categories. Work is important. It occupies a primary focus in our society. For instance, when you meet somebody for the first time, you generally ask the first question, how do you do? But what's the second question? Usually, what do you do? We relate to people based on their activity in the world. What is your business? What's your occupation? What do you spend your time during the day doing? Heavy focus on the work ethic. The point is, is that most of our population works. They're nine-to-fivers. They put in their time. And that's why the weekend has become the American proverb of pleasure. The weekend, we shift gears. We've been working hard all week, putting in eight hours a day. We want to pack it full of fun, do something different, don't work. And that is why a lot of people will not go to church. Because church, to them, it's like work to them. It's too much like work. And so they'll want to sit home and relax. It's like the story I heard of a father and son looking at a war memorial. There was a list of names on the memorial and the little son said, Daddy, who are all those people? And the man said, Son, those are the names of the people who died in the service. He said, Which one, Daddy, the nine or the eleven? According to the Gallup polls, 90% of people in America say they believe in God, yet only half or less attend a worship service once a week. My point is, is that most people work, but not everyone comes to a church to hear the gospel so that the gospel is most effectively preached, not in a church, but at the workplace, at the marketplace, where people hang out where people traffic with other people day in and day out. And so 
That's what we want to talk about today. Bringing God to the marketplace. I am certainly not going to preach that people should be coming to church. I'm not going to preach to the world and unbelievers that they ought to be coming to church. Would you expect an unbeliever to go to church? If you were unsaved, would you want to come to church? If I was not a Christian, the last place I'd want to go is a church. I mean, if I'm going to be a sinner, I'm going to be a very good sinner. And I'm not going to hang out where Christians hang out, especially if I don't want to be one. So, as much as we invite people to come to church, and I think that's well and fine, this morning I want to invite the church to go to the world, which is what Jesus said. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I contend that the gospel is most effectively preached somewhere out there on the other side of these walls. While we preach the gospel here and we'll continue to give altar calls, that's not the most effective place for the gospel to be preached. This is the most effective place for the church to be taught. But the most effective place for evangelism takes place outside the walls. Another poll, how many of you have Christian jobs? That is, you work primarily around Christians all day long. Raise your hands. Primarily, it's just Christians. Okay, now I want a show of hands. Primarily, you work around unbelievers. Raise your hands. See, that's the point. How many of us so often have said, oh, if I only had a Christian job, if I could surround myself with someone else besides these heathens, I'd be better off. But that defeats the purpose of the gospel. It defeats the purpose of the gospel, as Jesus said, to go out into all the world. Now, in verse 9, there's an exhortation which says, Exhort servants to be obedient. Or as some of your translations say, slaves. In the ancient world, slavery was common. There were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Over half of the population of the Roman world were slaves. That was the workforce of the Roman Empire. When Paul wrote his letters, when they evangelized around the world, half of them were slaves. When Jesus preached the gospel to the poor, he was speaking by and large to a number of slaves who were owned by a group of people. See, to the Roman, it was beneath his dignity to work. And so he would hire someone, but the system was abused. That is, a slave was considered a non-entity, the scum of the earth. He was bought and sold, discarded as if he was a tool or a piece of property. The Roman statesman Cato said this concerning slaves. He said, old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is sick, don't feed him anything. It's not worth your money. Take a sick slave and... Throw him away because he's nothing but an inefficient tool. It is said that Caesar Augustus crucified a slave who accidentally killed his pet quail. Now, this is the setting of the New Testament. And Paul is writing to slaves, Christian slaves, on an island called Crete. Well, he's writing to a lot of people. In fact, in chapter 2, he speaks about older men, older women, younger men, younger women. We're going to speak about those categories tonight and their roles in the church. But here he's talking about slaves. Now you might ask, does the Bible then condone slavery, Skip? How come Paul isn't picketing against slavery and trying to reform the system? Because 
the New Testament never aims at changing human systems. He does not condone slavery, but he's not trying to change slavery. Because, this is the reason why, the root issue, the root problem, is not the human system. Man's problem is not basically economic or political or social, but spiritual. Unless the heart is changed, it's not going to do any good. So the scripture doesn't attack the system and say, now let's pick it and uh, uh, have documents signed to change the laws. Now I do find place for that today, however, because we can do it. We can make changes. You couldn't in the Roman Empire. Paul's whole point and the point of the New Testament is that wherever you are in life, if you're an employer, an employee, a husband, a wife, do the best in the situation right where you are. The heart needs to be changed. If the heart of man is not changed, the system will eventually go corrupt. Man, wicked man, will corrupt the finest governmental system eventually. But spiritual men, godly men, can make better any corrupt system. The root is the spiritual issue. It's the heart. Take an example in modern times. Slavery that was abused in the United States and in Europe was abolished largely due to the preaching of John Wesley, George Whitfield, Christian statesmen like William Wilberforce and William Pitt. These were godly men who stood against it. And as the gospel was being preached and as men's hearts were being changed, that system eventually fell. So Paul does not condone slavery. The scripture condemns the mistreatment of any individual but it's not trying to reform the system of slavery. Now, I've told you all that, just so you know the background of why Paul is writing. I do see a 20th century application. We are not slaves. You don't go to work with a master who beats you, whips you, chains you in the closet, makes you work 40 hours uh, every few days, or putting in extra time, and he doesn't own you. But there is an application in that with employers and employees, there is a relationship that I see principles in this text fitting in. Americans are becoming, in a sense, slaves more and more economically. As the interest rates go up, as the cost of living goes up, it's tougher to buy homes, it's tougher to survive, and plus the pressure that the media puts on you to keep up with the Joneses to have a new car every couple of years, we become oppressed and slaves to our economic condition. Now, I want to dissect verse 9 and 10 this morning. And let's dig out the principles that Paul gives in showing us the profile of a model slave, a model servant in the New Testament times. And let's see how this fits in an employee-employer relationship and the preaching of the gospel. Someone who is a model employee. First of all, verse 9. It says, exhort, which means admonish or encourage. Exhort servants, first of all, to be obedient to their masters. Now, I'm going to read that in another translation. The New English Bible says, tell slaves to respect their owner's authority in everything, tell a slave to respect his owner's authority in everything. Now, that would apply to us. We could simply say, 
Respect your boss's orders, your boss's authority in everything. The Greek is a continual tense. It means be continually serving, be continually obedient, be continually listening to his orders. Paul doesn't say change the law if you're a slave. He says if you're a slave, be a good one. Obey the orders of your boss when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. If he's nice to you or if he's mean to you, be obedient to him. Now I can hear a slave in the New Testament saying, Hey, wait a minute, Paul. What if uh, my master isn't so nice? What if he's harsh? What if he beats me? What if he's illegally unjust? What do I do? Shouldn't I rebel? I should refuse to be a doormat. Shouldn't I? You can turn with me if you'd like, or I can simply read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to read it in the Living Bible. So unless you have that version, you won't be able to follow along. But listen closely. Servants, you must respect your masters and do whatever they tell you. Not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are tough and cruel. Praise the Lord if you are punished for doing right. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you do right and you suffer for it and are patient beneath the blows, God is well pleased. Now here's a problem that the early church slaves faced. Here's a slave who just gets converted. He's become a Christian. He's a child of God. He's a joint heir with Christ. He knows that someday he's going to reign with Christ forever. And now he recognizes an inconsistency between being a slave, being a servant of a man, and being a follower of Christ. He thinks, why am I serving this bozo? I'm a king's kid. I'm a child of the omnipotent sovereign God. I don't have to put up with this garbage. Paul says, obey him, even if he's harsh. Obey him. Why should a slave put up with the harsh treatment of a master? Or let's put it in modern terms. Why should an employee put up with an employer who gives harsh orders that he doesn't feel like putting up with? Here's the reason. Because probably that master is a heathen master. And you are a Christian slave. And the only chance, perhaps that that master will get to see what a Christian is really like, to come in contact with a real believer, is his slave. And if his slave is doing a sloppy job, it's going to be a sloppy witness. If that employee mouths off and says, I don't like you, and see, the master is going to think, oh, that's what a Christian is like, huh? Someone who defies authority. Someone who does a sloppy job. Someone who won't obey what I say. And so Paul says, be obedient to your masters. Serve them. Listen to them. Consistently do it. Here's my point. Being a Christian should make a person a better worker. A more productive worker. It should make that worker become the best, don't you think, for the company. Because anybody can listen to his boss when his boss says, would you please do me this favor? Because you're such a wonderful employee. But we know what it's like. It doesn't happen that way always, does it? Sometimes the boss is in a horrible mood. 
and he mouths off to you, what are we to do? Be consistently obedient, even when they're harsh. Be obedient to your masters in all circumstances. If your job is intolerable, if you don't like your job, there is a simple solution. And the Lord has really impressed this upon my heart, and that is quit and find another job. But while you're at the job where you are, do your best. Let me give you a little story of what happened in my life. I was a young Christian. I was 18 years old. I didn't have work. I needed work. I needed to pay rent. I prayed to the Lord for a job. I said, God, here's the Christian prayer. Give me any job. Lord, you know that I'll do anything you want me to do. God said, all right. I found the only job in town, out of town actually, was at a turkey ranch before Thanksgiving. It was an assembly line of where they would kill turkeys and package them for Thanksgiving. Now, my job was when the turkey was coming on the assembly line after being killed, it was hanging on a hook. I had to cut off its feet. The guy in front of me cut off its head, and I'd string it up on hooks. Now, I'd do that all day long. I'd grab legs, hook them. Grab the next legs, hook them. Grab the next legs, hook them. After ten minutes, you feel like you've been there for eight hours. I hated it. In my heart, I started complaining. I was working around, everyone around me was a migrant worker. After eight hours, I quit. The first day. Went into the boss and said, thank you for uh, the job, I appreciate you hiring me. I quit, I can't handle this. The next morning I got up, opened up my Bible. And I had the audacity to pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, get me a job, any job. You know I'll do anything, Lord. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I went, oh, ooh. Now, while you're at the job, do your best. If it's intolerable, don't complain. Quit. Find something else. But while you're there, be obedient to your boss. Before we go on to the next, there was another special problem. Maybe you can relate to this. Some of the masters of the slaves were also becoming Christians. Now picture the scene. You have a slave who's converted. He's a Christian. All of a sudden, his master becomes a Christian. He embraces Jesus Christ. Now, all of a sudden, the slave and the master are brothers. A relationship has been instantly developed. And so the slave begins to think, hey, we're brothers. I'm not a slave anymore. We're on the same level. I don't have to be so particular about my Christian testimony to this guy because he's already a Christian. Or maybe he'll give me special favors after all we're Christians. We don't have to maintain that same high level of business integrity anymore because we're all believers. Right? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just turn back a few pages. Verse 1, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because 
Those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Don't slough off because you're doing business with a Christian. Because you're working for a Christian, don't expect special favors. In fact, give him your best because you are now blessing a member of the body of Christ. So you should really pour out your energy because he is a brother. If I could say one word to Christian businessmen, it would be the word integrity. Or perhaps better, faithfulness. Faithfulness. If you're doing business with another Christian, don't think, well, he's a brother, he'll understand. If I'm three days late in giving him the bid. If I don't finish the job when I said I'd finish the job, so what? He's a brother. He'll understand. All the more reason to be filled with integrity in your business dealings because he is a believer. If he's not a believer, you want to adorn the doctrine of God. You want to make it attractive. So you should go out of your way to fulfill your business engagements. You know, I've spoken to employers who have told me that they never want to hire Christians again. And most of them were Christian employers. They said, I don't want to hire a believer They take advantage of me. They think because I'm a Christian boss, they should have special favors. That they should be able to sit around all day and read their Bibles. They don't give me a full day's work. I'd rather just hire an unbeliever who knows what I expect of them and will fulfill those expectations. When you come into this church building, if you sit next to your boss Sunday morning, you are equals. There's no difference between you and that boss. Or if you go out to do ministry, you're the same. You're equal. There's no difference. But when you're on the job with him, there's a difference. There's a big difference. He's your employer and he's paying you to do a job. And so we should be obedient to those who have rule over us. Let's go on in verse 9 of Titus 2. It not only says exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, but it says to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Now, Paul goes a second mile. Or he tells the employee to go a second mile. He's adding an entirely different dimension to the work ethic. Not only be obedient to what your boss tells you to do, but the right attitude is important. You want to please him. It's not just following orders. But it's the attitude in which you follow orders. You see, anyone can say, sure, I'll do it. Yeah, what do you want? I'll do it. And you can make everyone at work know how miserable you feel carrying out those orders. You can gripe and complain. Oh, you're fulfilling the quota. But the attitude stinks. So it should be with a pleasing in mind. Paul, in other words, says, look, Aim to please. Do a plus job. Don't just do the minimum required. But how about take initiative? How about think in advance what your employer would like to see done? Go out of your way and do it. So that your aim is not only to follow orders, but also to please. It says in Philippians, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Oh, that's such a hard commandment. Why would you write that, Paul? Why don't you just say, do all things your boss tells you to do? But do all things without grumbling, complaining. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment. Ephesians 6, we have a list much like Titus. He speaks about children obeying their parents. Fathers not provoking their children to wrath. And we land in verse 6. 
with the employee-employer relationship. Or verse 5. Servants or slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as unto Christ. Now, look at how it's to be done. Verse 6. Not with eye service. That is, not when the boss is looking at you. Where you're just hanging around doing nothing, the boss walks in, and you look like you're working, you're smiling and productive. Not with eye service. Not as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Now look over at the book of Colossians. Two books over. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That's motivation. Don't do it to look good or just to get a raise. Do it as unto Christ. It's possible to be a housewife and cook a meal like you're cooking it for Jesus. It's possible to lick stamps as if you're doing it for Jesus. To do a good job, to do grunt work. As unto the Lord. That's the motivation. And that will change the work that you do from just following mundane orders to something as an offering, as a sacrifice, pleasing the Lord. And it shows your boss that you are submitted to a higher authority, the Word of God. You're doing it not just for them, but you're doing it to please Jesus because He commanded you to do it. And it is one of the most powerful witnesses It's to be obedient, to aim to please, to take initiative. Remember, Paul is writing to slaves. Slaves were considered scum. The scum of the earth. A non-entity. A thing to be discarded. Paul isn't saying, change the laws. He's saying, if you're considered to be scum, then be the best scum around. If people regard you as a non-entity, you be the best non-entity you can at work. If they look at you as a thing, be the best thing that you can. Do it as unto the Lord. Let me give you a list of questions. And as I give you this list, I ask the same questions. I serve my employer as if I'm serving the Lord. Here's another question. Do I serve my employer as well when he's not watching as when he's watching? Do I initiate projects? Am I just punching a time clock or am I willing to put in extra hours if the company needs me, if my boss needs me? Let's go on to the next thing in verse 10. Titus 2.10. It says, Not pilfering which means stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Not pilfering, 
but showing all good fidelity. Let me read the Amplified Bible in that verse. Nor to steal by taking things of small value, but to prove themselves truly loyal and entirely reliable and faithful throughout. In New York, in one of the big business firms, there was a sign that was hung for all of the employees. This is what the sign said. Sometime between starting and quitting time, without infringing on lunch periods, coffee breaks, rest periods, storytelling, ticket selling, holiday planning, and the rehashing of yesterday's TV programs, we ask that each employer try to find some time for a work break. This may seem radical, but it might aid steady employment and assure regular paychecks. Now, that is a little joke meant to poke fun at a truth. A lot of people use company time for their own pursuits and sort of do a little bit of work along the side. For the Christian, this ought not to be so. Notice that he mentions stealing. Amplify Bible says stealing small things. New King James says pilfering. Not stealing, not pilfering. It's reported that millions of dollars are lost each year by companies through employees stealing. Millions of dollars that employees steal. Not big things, but paper clips, pencils, paper, little things. And there's all sorts of excuses that people have. They've been anonymously um, asked these questions, and the response is something like, well, uh, they owe it to me. I'm a good employee. I deserve it. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you use company time for your own pursuits, for your own interests? Do you use company equipment or company stamps to mail your own letters? Copy machines, phones, spending a lot of the time on the phone for your own pursuits rather than the company. That's stealing. Unless it's sanctioned and it's okay by the company. How about writing off a personal trip as a business expense? What about being at work on time consistently? Do you overextend your lunch breaks, your coffee breaks? You see, all of that is stealing in little things. And so he gives three things that an employee should be in relationship to his employer. Respect his authority, please him, and develop trust. Be trustworthy. Before we move on to the end of verse 10 and close, I want to give you a word about witnessing at work. When I worked at a hospital, there was a guy who had become a Christian real recently, brand new believer. Well, he was a few months old in the Lord. So he thought that every single person, no matter what he was doing, no matter who was paying him to do a job, he had to witness to him. He was an orderly. He had to get our patients from upstairs and bring them down for the exams. And he'd go up to the room and wheel out a patient. And instead of making the exam time, he'd sit in the hall and he'd witness to him. The boss heard of it. The boss started getting uptight. I took him aside. I said, Jay, I don't think you ought to be witnessing while you're being paid to do a job. He said, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says I'm to witness to every creature. I said, right, you should. But not on your boss's time. If he's paying you to do a job, 
He's not paying you to witness. Then do a job and find the person after work or at lunch and witness to him, but not on company time unless it's sanctioned by the boss. I'm not saying we shouldn't witness, but I'm saying we should respect the authority of the boss. Otherwise, he's never going to want to hire another Christian because Christians never do any work. They talk all the time. Finally, the purpose in all this instruction is the end of verse 10. That they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. I like the NIV much better in this. It says that they may make the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive. You know the word attractive is the Greek word kosmeo. Do you recognize that at all? What word do we derive out of kosmeo? Cosmetics. It's a familiar term to many of us. The teaching here is that we should be the cosmetics that wrap up the gospel when we present it to people by a lifestyle that adorns, that makes the gospel beautiful, that takes words off of a page of a book and makes them living so that our boss, our unbelieving boss, will notice the work of a Christian and say, this guy really works. This guy's changed. This Jesus he talks about is real. It affects his work. But how sad when a boss would say, the guy talks a good line, preaches a good gospel, but he is lazy. The purpose in being a good slave is to adorn, to make attractive the gospel, to beautify the Bible. I worked in Israel on a kibbutz. I learned a lesson about this from my friend. A kibbutz is a place where you work very hard during the day and you live in what I would consider by American standards, below normal conditions. There was one job on the kibbutz nobody wanted to do, and that is work in the chicken coop. Especially before Passover, when you have to take all these chickens, put them in boxes, send them to Jerusalem or Haifa or any of the big cities. And so you work long into the night. You work from about 11 to about 3 or 4 in the morning. You pick chickens up in each hand. You put them in crates. You do it all night. It is stinky. It is smelly. It's obnoxious. Nobody wants to do it, but they are picked at different times. Different volunteers are picked and told to do the job. My friend volunteered us to do this job. Not just the required week, but three weeks in a row. He walked in and said, Skip and I would love to work in the chickens. I said, Randy, you're an idiot. Nobody wants to work in the chickens. Wait till our time comes up. He said, no, this would be a great, great opportunity to share the gospel. Well, let's take initiative. I said, oh, man, I don't want to. Because you have to work from 6 in the morning till your job ends. And then at 10 or 11, go work in the chickens to 3 or 4 in the morning and do it all over again for a few weeks. But in three weeks, we had people coming up to us, unbelievers, Israeli Jews, who said, you know, we've had volunteers from all over the world here, but none like you. What makes you so different? You guys work. And you guys seem to smile while you work. And this is the worst job in the kibbutz, and it doesn't bother you. What is it? I said, well, I confess, it really has bothered me, but let me tell you the motivation for it. And we got to share the gospel with them, but they approached us. They wanted to know what made us so different. As we began this morning, you saw the show of hands. How many people work? And you discovered that most people, at least in this first service, 
are employed by somebody else, that is, they have bosses, and that they are surrounded by unbelievers. My point is, is that the gospel is more effectively preached, much more out there, not in here. George McLeod, in one of his writings, put it this way. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again in the center of the marketplace, as well as on the steeple of the church. I am reclaiming the fact that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves at a town garbage heap, at a place where people talk smut, where thieves curse, where soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died, and that's what he died about. And that's where Christ's men ought to be. And what church people ought to be about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a country that has many benefits and blessings. Slavery is abolished. We can choose to go to work. We can choose to quit. We collect wages for our work. We can support a family. Heavenly Father, with all of this, I pray that we would become servants. First of all, sold out to you. Willing even to be patient beneath the blows so that you are well pleased. Lord, I pray that through our activity, our work, our daily actions, that people would see the gospel and that it would be attractive to them, Lord. In Jesus' name.